My wife's father never gets sick. He doesn't allow himself to get sick. He's in his 60s and he still plays hockey every week. When I call him, actually I, I don't call him because he lives in Canada and that's too expensive. When I text him and ask him to call me, uh, he's often out of breath. And I'm like, are you dying? What's, what's wrong? And he responds, I'm just running. I'm like, John, I, I looked at the weather app. It's eight degrees outside. You are running in a blizzard. He's convinced he can run off any sickness. He goes hiking in the most bizarre places. Iceland, Nepal, Chile. And he will stay for days with no guides. Because guides are for tourists. I'll figure it out on my own. He sleeps in the wild. He will not bathe for seven days on these trips. And he used to ask me, Kyle, would you, would you like to go hiking with me? <laughs> John, that sounds like my worst nightmare. <laughs> I would rather be eaten by a pack of wolves than go seven days without showering and camping on the side of a mountain. He, he's a tough man. He's the Canadian version of Bear Grylls. This is my father-in-law. This is the man who raised my wife. And then she married me. Now, I know what you're thinking. Kyle, you seem like the rugged outdoors type. Uh, I, I know I give off that vibe, um, but that is not me. So my father-in-law never gets sick, and at least once a year, I contract something deadly. It's called the man cold. Everyone else in my family could have the same sickness, but only I am on the verge of death. <laughs> I'm always uh, staggering around the house like Fred from Sanford and Son. Remember him, he used to grab his chest, stagger backwards and say, I'm coming, Elizabeth. His wife, uh, Elizabeth, had died earlier. I don't say my wife's name when I do it because she's alive and well. I do grab my chest, stagger backwards and say, I'm coming, Spurgeon. This, this is the big one. <laughs> now, I have a theory about man colds. <clears throat> I'm sure you're dying to hear it. Uh, here it is. Men naturally believe they need to be endlessly capable and never failing. So if we get any illness, we make a big deal out of it because it seems like a big deal. It causes more distress because we're supposed to be infallible. In other words, a man has to think that his cold is so close to death or else he shouldn't be bothered by it. What do you think about that? You buy it? <laughs> I have a philosophy to explain away all of my weaknesses. Just text me. Give them all to you. Anyway, my wife will say, my husband is sick, and his moaning shows it. There are rare occasions that my wife becomes sick. She doesn't moan or complain, but I can always tell because her, her sickness drains the color from her face. I will say, my wife is sick. Her face shows it. She says, my husband is sick and his moaning shows it. I say, my wife is sick and her face shows it. What happens when a church gets sick? How do you know? The church is sick and her worship shows it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 21. The church is sick and her worship shows it. I could give you examples of all the abominable things that are going on in churches under the name of worship. But I don't want to focus on what worship shouldn't look like. I want to focus on what worship should look like. 
Paul is writing to a group of churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia. I said Paul. Peter is writing to a group of churches in those areas. And he's not writing to one church in each area. There are multiple churches in each area. He's writing to multiple churches in Pontus, multiple churches in Galatia, multiple churches in Cappadocia, multiple churches in Asia, and multiple churches in Bithynia. Peter is telling these churches, it matters how you worship. There may be other churches that are doing it wrongly. I just want to lay out what God-honoring, Christ-exalting worship looks like. The four truths that Peter gave those churches, I want to give you. Four truths, no applications at the end today, just the four truths. Truth number one, you worship God with your mind. You worship God with your mind. Notice verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Now, I want to show you how this phrase reaches back and then how it reaches forward. So first, how it reaches back. The ESV translates this Greek phrase, preparing your minds for action. This phrase is is so rare that this is the only time it's found in the New Testament. We use the ESV here in our preaching and teaching. And I think it's helpful for you to follow along in the same translation as well. I think the ESV is the strongest, strongest readable English translation. Now that doesn't mean that the ESV always nails the Greek. For instance, here, their translation obscures the rich Old Testament background behind the Greek phrase. This phrase is translated in the KJV, gird up the loins of your mind. (laughs) Now you see why the ESV translators didn't go with that more wooden translation. It's wooden, but it's also weird. When I think of loins, the mind is not where I picture them. The wooden Greek translation is literally gird up the loins of your mind. In in fact, you may want to write that by verse 13, right above where it says preparing your minds for action. Uh, You could write in the Greek, it says, gird up the loins of your mind. There are echoes of Exodus in that wordage. Peter is taking the readers back to the book of Exodus. The Egyptians have held God's people in bondage for 400 years. God's people are a slave people. And God told his people through his prophet Moses, you're about to be up out of here. My people will be slaves to no one but me. God gave his people instructions. He said, I want you to kill a lamb and paint the blood over the doorpost of your slave hut. In addition, I want you to sit down and eat the lamb you killed. But when you eat it, I want you to eat it with your loins girded and your shoes on your feet. In other words, when I give you the green light, I don't want you to be looking for your shoes. I want you to be ready to power walk up out of Egypt. Now that probably still leaves you wondering what the word girded means. Easterners were, wore long flowing robes. For the whole of biblical history, it was common for most people to wear long loose robes. If the ancient Orientals wanted to move quickly, or do a strenuous activity, 
They would gather up their loose robe, then tie it around their waist or either tuck it in their belt. This would make movement easier, faster, and less encumbered. Now, in case that mental picture wasn't good enough for you, I brought an actual picture. In case you want to go home and gird up your loins tonight, I want you to be prepared on how to do it. Ancient soldiers girded up their long garments in order to prepare for battle. So, so what is Peter wanting these churches to do? Gird up your loins, they understand that. But gird up the loins of your mind? Peter wants them to prepare their minds for battle. To prepare their minds to act. To prepare their minds for war. To prepare their minds for worship. Tighten up the thought processes of your mind. There were some physical preparations that needed to take place to tighten up the loins of their clothing. And there are some spiritual preparations that needed to take place if they're going to tighten up the loins of their minds. Jesus said in Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Churches do a fairly good job of teaching their people to love the Lord with all of their hearts. To love the Lord with all of their soul. But they're doing a poor job of teaching their people to love the Lord with all of their minds. The human mind is, uh, I think, the most incredible of God's creations. It, it is more powerful than the world's largest supercomputer. Peter is using a simple metaphor to challenge his readers to prepare their minds for deep thinking. I told you how this phrase reaches back to Exodus. Now how it reaches forward to us. We are living in a period of church history that may be classified as mindless. I don't think many people in churches love the Lord with their minds. And I blame the pastors. Men who stand before their people each week and do not encourage deep thinking. Do not encourage deep consideration or deep study. If your pastor never says anything above your head, you're never being challenged. No wonder Harry Blemeyers opened his classic book with these words. Today, there is no Christian mind. A mindless Christianity is no Christianity at all. You must develop a Christian mind. Study the Bible. The more you understand God with your mind, the more you will love him with your mind. R.C. Sproul says it like this. Thinking is done in the mind. And Christians are called repeatedly in sacred scripture not to leave their minds in the parking lot when they enter the church, but to awaken their minds so that they might think clearly and deeply about the things of God. End quote. In the beginning, we have creation. God created us. Shortly after creation, something happened. We have creation, but then we had the church. What happened? Creation and then the... Okay, I, I need it louder. Creation and then the fall. The fall affected our bodies. Uh, we would no longer live forever. Uh, the body could be sick. Men could contract man colds. And the body breaks down. 
Church, the fall didn't just affect your body. It affected your mind. You have a fallen mind. It affects your ability to think deeply about spiritual things. Your mind has been corrupted by sin. But when you are redeemed by Christ, you're given a new heart. Not a new body, that comes later. But you're given a new heart, you're given a new mind. A redeemed mind. A mind capable of worshiping its creator. God created your mind. And until your mind worships him, your mind will never be fully satisfied. Your mind was made to enjoy God and to think on him. Isn't it strange that our Lord says that we are to love him with our minds? We don't usually speak of love in terms of intellectual activity. Worship is sick when it's just emotions. Well, I, I want a feeling. I want to feel something. A God with emotions created man with emotions. Emotions aren't bad, but emotions can lie to you. My wife says this all the time. Your emotions lie to you. It, you, you have to bring your emotions under the sovereign rule of God. Prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds to think. Prepare your minds to worship. Verse 13 continues. And being sober-minded. Now, what's the opposite of sober? Drunk. I think this is both literal and figurative. One, don't have a drunk mind. Two, like alcohol can numb the body, so other activities can numb your mind. Your, your fallen mind craves mindless ecstasy. Your redeemed mind craves thoughtful worship. Do not let your mind wander into any kind of mental intoxication which inhibits your spiritual alertness. Do not inebriate your mind with the world's liquor. Expose your mind to God's glory. Sober-mindedness doesn't happen automatically. It requires effort. Do not become dull in your thinking, slow in your learning. The mind is crucial. Peter continues writing in verse 13, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The disciplined, sober, worshiping mind of a Christian is fixed on grace. Now in the verse... Why say, set your hope fully? Why not just say, set your hope? Because we are given to partial hope. All the while claiming Christ, but clinging to another hope. You worship God with your mind by fully hoping in his second coming. And the grace that he will bring in his second coming. Don't allow your mind to focus merely on the present. You must go future with your mind. You must always have a mind learning of Christ and longing for Christ. You need a hopeful mind. Truth number two. You worship God by how you live your life. You worship God, you worship God by how you live your life. Now, Peter is about to launch into an extended section of moral commands. In fact, before we move on to verse 14, look, look at the first 
word of verse 13. What's that word? Therefore. And whenever we come across this word, therefore, we must ask the question, what is it, therefore? Therefore reaches all the way back to verses 1 through 12. The word therefore always signals a conclusion that is about to be reached based on a previous premise or argument. Peter has been talking about salvation for 12 verses. Now on the basis of that salvation, he is going to give these churches moral commands. In other words, right thinking leads to right living. Your belief bleeds out into your behavior. Another follower of Christ, Paul, loved to lay out his material just like this. He did it in nearly all of his books. The first half would always be heavy doctrine, and then the second half would be practical behavior. If you just jump to one of his books, Ephesians, if you just jump to the second half, you might think, oh, this is, this is legalistic, unless you ground it in the first half of the book. It took Paul entire books to lay out that formula, Peter does it here in one chapter. Verses 1 through 12, heavy doctrine. Now, practical living. What should this heavy doctrine produce in your life? Verse 14, as obedient children. Now let's pause there for a moment. Peter says, now that you've experienced this salvation, there are some things for you to obey. Now notice, he doesn't say obey to receive salvation. But once you've received it, obey as obedient children. Now some of you parents are like, mm, I can't comprehend. I can't comprehend this analogy. What are these obedient children you speak of? As obedient children, do not be conformed. Peter does not want their lives conformed. This is a, a rare verb, only used one other place in the New Testament, Romans 12, 2. Don't be conformed to the world. Literally, don't be squeezed into the mold of this world. Don't be fashioned by worldly fashions. Don't pattern your life after the pattern of this world. Don't value what this world values. Be a nonconformist. Now you say, well, that's, that's what the Amish and Mennonites believe, right? They aren't conformed to our automobiles. They're not conformed to our electricity, our modern clothing, or our modern deodorants. As noble as they may be, they totally miss the point of nonconformity. That's an external, superficial nonconformity. The nonconformity we are called to practice is an ethical nonconformity. We are to practice the ethic of God and not the ethic of this world. The ethic of the world may be sex before marriage, but we hold to a biblical ethic. The mind of the world may accept abortion and homosexuality as acceptable behavior, but we have a redeemed mind and we think differently because of the commands of Scripture. You must resist the pressure to conform to the age. There are some values of the church that may be praised by certain societies in certain times. But that's always temporary. That's what the church in the United States is going through right at this moment. They're used to being praised by society. 
And that's always only temporary. It's natural for us to go against the grain of our culture. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Peter now hearkens back to their life before Christ. Their pre-Christian life. Former passions, former ignorance, former sinful lifestyle. And he says, don't lazily slip back into those old grooves of evil. Those passions that used to dominate your life. But now you have a new mind, a new heart. You have salvation now. Peter recognized that the Christian life is not passive. Ungodly desires still beckon us and tempt us to depart from God. You need to believe that Jesus Christ is better than sin. There is a superior pleasure in Jesus than in your former life. We resist evil desires that we once indulged. We turn from sinful acts that are so common in our culture. The church's worship is sick when they meet with the people of God on Sunday, but act like the world on Monday. When there's no ethical difference, no moral contrast, no resistance to sin. We aren't conformed to this world. We're conformed to another world. There is a distinction between God's people and the world. When Justin Martyr addressed, by the way, his mom didn't name him that last name. That'd be terrible. Martyr. When Justin Martyr addressed his apologia, his defense of Christianity to Emperor Antoninus Pius, he sought to defend the truth claims of Christianity. And not only did he give the normal arguments for the truth claims of Christianity, but he also challenged the emperor to examine the lives of Christians and observe their purity. Can you imagine that argument being used today? Can can you imagine writing to the President of the United States or the chancellor at the University of Tennessee, or the CEO of the Bank of America, and saying to them, listen, I just want to validate the truth of Christianity for you. And all you'll need to do is is examine the lives of your citizens, your students, and your employees. And you'll come to the conclusion that these Christians are different. Verse 15, But as he who called you is holy, He who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Now now let's deal first with God's holiness and then we'll deal with your holiness. First, his holiness. The holiness of God is a fundamental tenet of scripture. There are dimensions to God's holiness. There is a separate dimension. He is separate from humans. There is a moral dimension. He is without sin. But both of those fail to give a full picture. When the angels around the throne sing, holy, 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 they're not saying moral, moral, moral. No, they're not saying separate, separate, separate. No, there there is a, a purity dimension. But even that is secondary. The first and primary meaning of the term holy refers to God's transcendent, majestic otherness. He's different than us. Holiness focuses on the godness of God. 
He's in a class by himself. There's an infinite difference between him and us. When you study the Old Testament, you will see that when Israel got in trouble, it was when they forgot about the otherness of God. They started to think of God casually, like a slightly higher version of themselves. But God is not that. He is not a slightly smarter version of you. That's his holiness. Now your holiness. God wants you to be joyful. Now that puts a smile on your face. God wants you to be fulfilled. Now that puts a grin on your face. God wants you to be holy. What does that put on your face? Probably not a smile, probably not a grin. You know why? Because holiness is not an attractive concept to you. It, you think of it as something that is sterile or painful. Holiness is not boring. It's not giving up on fun. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. You could translate that, joyful are the holy people. Holy people are the happiest people in the world. Now what is holiness? Holiness is not isolation. It's not locking yourself up in a compound or going to live on a secluded mountain. Holiness is not external appearances. They're not unimportant, but they're not primary. The Pharisees had external appearances of holiness, but inside they were wicked, evil, and dirty. Holiness is not a couple of taboos you don't do. Holiness is not trying to live in the 1950s. Or better, the 1590s. Positionally, you are holy at salvation. Practically, you need to progress in your holiness. Now, in typical New Testament fashion, Peter calls believers to a holy life based on what God has done for them. The first 12 verses, salvation. This is not legalistic. This is the natural outworking of salvation. Verse 16, Peter writes, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, Peter has already quoted Exodus. We talked about that in the whole loins situation. Now he's quoting Leviticus. Four different times God says in Leviticus, be holy for I am holy. The word holy shows up in the book of Leviticus more than any other book. Now in what context did God tell his people, you be holy for I am holy? What was the context? Well, God told his people that when he gave them the law. This law was meant to distinguish them from the surrounding nations. God demanded his people perform elaborate ceremonies of washing and cleansing. Sometimes this is referred to as the holiness code. God gave his people holiness regulations like clean foods to eat, unclean foods to avoid, purification ceremonies after birth, giving birth to a child, regulations about infectious skin diseases and bodily discharges. They even had rules about mildew. Peter is not saying that these scattered churches need to do all of this. He's not prescribing to you the specifics of the Levitical code. He's demonstrating that even though those Old Testament regulations are no longer binding, 
you still need to be a distinct people among all the peoples of the earth. Now God says, be holy, for I am holy. Now I'm about to dive deep for a moment, so stay with me. We're going to come back up for air shortly. By God saying, be holy, for I am holy, he is saying that holiness is communicable. Communicable meaning able to be communicated to others, able to be passed on, uh, contagious. God never says, you shall be sovereign because I am sovereign. God never says, you shall be transcendent because I am transcendent. God never says, be incomprehensible for I am incomprehensible. God never says, you shall be majestic for I am majestic. God never says, be omnipresent for I am omnipresent. Omnipresent, that's everywhere present in the same degree. God never says, be omniscient, all-knowing. Be omniscient, for I am omniscient. So it seems weird that God would say, be holy, for I am holy. All these other attributes of God that I listed are not communicable. They can't be shared with human beings. There are attributes of God. By the way, I, I don't like the terminology attributes. I prefer the perfections of God, not the attributes of God. Attributes allude that it's a part of him. But God is not part sovereign. He's perfectly sovereign. God is not part majestic. He is perfectly majestic. Anyway, I'm using a term I don't like. God has attributes that are not communicable and some that are communicable. Holiness is communicable. The argument here is logical and simple. Children inherit the nature of their father. He is holy and we have his nature. Your nature determines your appetites and your actions. A dog and a cat behave differently because they have different natures. A dog barks and wags his tail and leaps with excitement when he sees you because God gave him that nature. A cat ignores you and sticks her tail up at you because Satan gave her that nature. Children long to be like daddy. It's their nature to do so. You're not called to be holy because your neighbors need to see your holiness in order to get saved. That's poor motivation. You're called to be holy because your father in heaven is holy. Holiness isn't something you create. It's someone to whom you conform. Your calling is to pursue conformity to the character of God. Don't be conformed to this world. Be conformed to this holy God. Don't be conformed to your old life. Be conformed to your new life. To be holy as God is holy includes a full and pervading holiness that reaches to every aspect of your personality. It's all comprehensive. In all your conduct, it includes the mind, will, and emotions, body, soul, and spirit. D.A. Carson, the Canadian theologian, it's uh, my wife's from Canada, and today's our anniversary, and so um, I like to quote Canadians on our anniversary just to honor and show her I love her. She says it doesn't work. <laughs> D.A. Carson, a Canadian theologian, once said this, Christians 
don't drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness. They don't naturally gravitate toward prayer or obedience to Scripture. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish indiscipline and call it relaxation. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have escaped legalism. So the believer fights against the gravitational pull of our fallen nature and our, and our fallen world. Church, the world will not provide cheerleaders for you on your path to holiness. And you can put that in the bank. There are people who are paid to entice you with sin. What's the answer? Fill your mind with the word of God. Fill your heart with the holiness of God and you will have no room for sin. You need a hopeful mind, verse 13, and you need a holy life, verse 16. All of this flows naturally out of the gospel. The third truth is this. You worship God by possessing a proper view of him. You worship God by possessing a proper view of him. When, Adam, when, when God told Adam and Eve in the garden to multiply, what was his purpose? He wanted to fill the earth, not with just little toddlers. When God told Adam and Eve to multiply, he wanted them to fill the earth with worshipers. And the primary effect of the fall is not the presence of sin, but rather the absence of genuine worship. So the primary goal of salvation is to transform blind sinners into awestruck worshipers. What we commonly refer to as the Great Commission, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, is merely a restatement and clarification of that original Genesis 1.28 command to fill the earth with worshipers. Verse 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deed. Let's stop here. I like how Eugene Peterson paraphrases verse 17. He paraphrases it like this. You call out to God for help, and he helps. He's a good father that way. But don't forget, he's also a responsible father and won't let you get by with sloppy living. Peter here combines two concepts that we must never separate. God as father and God as judge. Peter doggedly holds on to both poles of the, this paradox. God as father and as judge. We know that we have been adopted and that we will be judged. Cranfield observes that it is, it is God's infinite condescension that you are allowed to call him father. You are not to presume on his goodness, but rather let it make you reverent and humble, and he has not ceased to be the judge of all men. J.L. Packer always emphasized that um, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, you find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. And having God as his father. 
If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Peter continues in verse 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Peter wants the churches to have a fear of God. Now, I'm not going to sanitize the word to make it fit our happy, clappy culture. Nor am I going to sensationalize the word to make it unnecessarily hard. This is not a servile fear that a prisoner possesses before his torturer. It's a filial fear of a child who knows his parents love him too much to, to allow sin to go unpunished. As children of God, we do not live in terror of him, but we do possess a holy fear of him. It's like a kid on a playground who is being teased because all the other little boys are trying to get him to participate in the sin, but he's not doing it. And, and, and then they, they tell him, you're just afraid your dad will hurt you. And he responds, no. I'm afraid I will hurt my father. We avoid sin because we do not want to disappoint our father and let him down. We know that our father is also our judge. He disciplines us, not out of anger, but out of love. And all the conservative scholars I read this week, Grudem, Sproul, Schreiner, Ham, Clowney, they all believe that this verse speaks of God's discipline to his own children. God is a loving disciplinarian who cannot permit his children to enjoy sin. There is a kind of fear that does not contradict confidence. I think this is something that really the older generation understands better than maybe my generation. There is a kind of fear that does not contradict confidence. A confident driver also possesses a healthy fear of an accident which prevents him from doing anything foolish. Now, a farmer may call this holy God the man upstairs. A baseball player may call this holy God the great Yankee and the sky. We call him father and judge. The church is sick when it doesn't see God as both father and judge. Not only will their worship show it, but their lifestyle will show it. The fourth and final truth is this. Your worship of God is made perfect by the work of Christ. Verse 18. Knowing that you were... Let's stop there. This is a normal Greek formula used to introduce a well-known fact. A Puritan by the name of Robert Lighton, who wrote a commentary in the late 1600s on 1 Peter, he paraphrased this opening this way. You know this already, but I want you to know it better. More deeply, more personally, turn it over frequently in your mind and study it, meditate on it more. It is so deep that you will never fathom it, and it is so useful that you will always benefit from it. So what does Peter want these churches to know more deeply? Continue reading in the verse. Knowing that you were ransomed 
from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold. (laughs) Peter is using terminology of the day, common language of the day. The Roman Empire, where these churches exist, was full of slaves. One historian said there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Slaves could be ransomed, redeemed, bought back by giving the slaveholder some silver and gold. There wasn't any way you could buy yourself out of slavery. You were just stuck. You needed someone to come and, and purchase you. But you were not redeemed by silver and gold, church. Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Slaves were set free by perishable silver and gold. Sinners are set free by the perfect Son of God. The Puritan Thomas Watson believed that ransom was God's greatest work. He said, great was the work of creation, but greater the work of redemption. It costs more to redeem us than to make us. In one there is a speaking of the word, in the other there is a shedding of blood. The theme of God's lamb runs all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And I couldn't possibly cover it all. But I do want to say this. The blood of bulls and goats is not precious. This blood is precious. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. We will not dare overlook that adjective. Not just any blood, precious blood. For those of you that are non-Christians, we have non-Christians come every Sunday. For those of you that are non-Christians, this is how you become a Christian. You are ransomed by the blood. Jesus purchases you. He buys you. He redeems you. Verse 20. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Now, like this, God wants you to know that your salvation was not a divine afterthought. It was not a plan B. God wasn't like, well, I, mm, I thought they wouldn't sin in the garden, but they did. What in the world should I do? Let me wring my hands. Maybe, maybe, crazy idea just popped in my head. Maybe I should send Jesus to redeem them. No, it was already known that man would sin. It was already determined that Jesus would leave the glories of heaven and come down to man. It was foreknown. God knew the complete program of redemption before the foundation of the world, before day one of creation. Human rebellion didn't surprise God. Why do we worship? We worship because of verse 21. (laughs) We are believers in God who raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory so that our faith and hope are in God. The church is sick when it doesn't realize they have a sickness that they can't run off. You may be able, like my father-in-law, to run off certain sicknesses, but you can't run off sin sickness. 
The church is sick. And her worship shows it. Worship is sick when it's just emotions. I have to have a feeling. The church is sick when they meet with the people of God on Sunday but act like the world on Monday. The church is sick when it doesn't see God as both father and judge. And we just finished this point. The church is sick when it doesn't realize they have an illness that they can't run off. So what is the church to do? What are you to do? Well, I'm glad you're asking because I just happened to bring an answer. Worship God with your mind. Worship God by how you live your life. Worship God by possessing a proper view of him. And church, don't ever forget Until God fully glorifies you with a sinless mind and body, your worship will always fall short. Your best worship is still sloppy worship. So don't get too prideful. The good news, ultimately what makes your worship acceptable to the Father is not the blood you put into it, but the blood Christ put into it. His blood covers your sloppy worship and the Father looks down and sees it as perfect worship. Your worship of God is made perfect by the work of Christ. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.